Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishman, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Lauren Martz, Senior Editor. On this week's pod, we remember Fred Frank, a biotech legend who passed away this weekend. We also remember Lisa Raines, a Genzyme executive who was killed in the 9-11 attacks. Steve Usden will have the latest from Washington. Our CRISPR guru, Lauren, is here to tell us about the bevy of papers that has just come out. And for our deal in focus, Everest Medicines is now getting into mRNA. Fred Frank was one of the founding fathers of biotech investment banking. He transformed the sector by constructing the first Genentech Roche deal. He passed away Saturday at 89. Frank was one of the first analysts covering drug companies, and he would become one of the earliest investment bankers when he joined Lehman Brothers as a partner in the late 60s. He would eventually become vice chair of Lehman. It put him on a path that would see him lead more than 200 deals and earn a reputation as a creative dealmaker a generous mentor, and one of the most gentlemanly bankers ever to grace Wall Street. The Genentech deal enabled Genentech to operate independent of Roche, which helped the young biotech build a pipeline that would eventually deliver 70% of Roche's revenue. The deal would usher in an intense period of collaboration between pharmas and biotechs. Also key in his deal-making, as Brooke Byers told me, Frank built a broad set of executive relationships with European pharmaceutical companies. That's what got Brooke Byers to jump on a plane and fly to New York to meet with Frank. He said, that was powerful. And that's why I wanted to meet him, because all of our small new biotechs wanted to develop partnerships with the European pharma companies. He was the first person to build those bridges. In handing him one of the many awards that he received in his life, Jim Greenwood said he saw biotechnology coming before almost anyone else. I also spoke with Jane Henderson, who is CFO at Adagio, who worked with Frank and his wife and business partner, Mary Tanner at Lehman Brothers. And she told me that that's exactly correct. She recalled having a lot of fun with Fred working on an antibody deal. And all of these pharmaceutical companies were telling her, why are you bothering? Antibodies are never going to become a commercial product. And she said that Fred just had that cutting edge of where he saw the innovation. He had the vision of where the next wave was going to be. She also pointed to what a great mentor he was. Not every senior banker will take the time to teach the young bankers what it is they know, she told me. And you learn not just from observing and doing, but hearing about their experiences and their war stories. Fred and Mary took the time and energy to do that and invested in their people. So, so I want to add one thing, because you use the word gentlemanly, and a lot of people use that word about him. But everybody who I spoke with also said that he cursed like a soldier, which he, he was a former soldier. They all tell hilarious stories, things that he did that kind of belie the, the gentlemanly image, basically, that he kind of poked fun at himself. 
So I don't want to leave people with the image that he was, you know, reserved or stuck up or anything like that. He was actually a tremendous amount of fun and he broke the norms, even for the biotech gang who were really kind of iconoclastic people. He stood out as being somebody who didn't take himself too seriously and liked a good joke. I want to add, and I really encourage everybody to read Jeff's quite extraordinary obituary in Biocentury, which is not paywall, this item. It's got tributes from several other folks in the ecosystem. I think also we have a generation of rising leaders, the next generation, who don't remember a time before Genentech was part of Roche. And understanding how huge a deal that was for the industry and for shaping what came after it and the thinking that went behind that, I think it's really important. You know, we're all to some degree students of history, but understanding what a single individual could do in order to chart the course of an industry with some innovative thinking, I think is is really important. And it's in a way a great testament to him. It's not just the number of products that have derived from that, but the way the ecosystem has flourished as a result of that model, I think is really a testament, as I said, to his efforts there. Yeah, very very much so, Simone. Going back to Steve's point, everyone I talked to over the weekend remembered one story that they loved the most about Fred, and that was back in 1990 at the CEO meeting co-hosted by Brooke Byers at Laguna Niguel, Brooke was handing out awards to various companies and CEOs, best new company, best diagnostic. He got to best M&A of the year. And of course, it was the Genentech Roche deal. Genentech's CEO at the time couldn't make it. So Brooke calls up Fred, who is sitting across a pool outside, immaculately dressed in his tailored suit, his tie, he had his cufflinks. And Brooke said, Fred, come accept this award. You don't need to walk around the pool. Everybody knows you walk on water. And Fred proceeded to walk straight into the pool, right across the pool, got up, stood next to Brooke, dripping wet, and accepted the award. And Brooke said that really resonated with him and so many other people because it showed, to Steve's point, just how down to earth he was. Now, one other story which I didn't manage to get into my story was Brooke explained why Fred spent the Korean War in Paris, which was quite a good story. He was at basic training. He had been named the Soldier of the Week, which gave you certain perks, one of which was you got a real fancy lighter that said your rank. They got his rank wrong. They put a rank on that was about two levels ahead of where he was. The commander said, well, that won't do. Let's change his title or his rank. And the captain at the time said, we can't do that because there's a freeze on promotions. And so he said, well, backdate it. And so the next thing you know, Fred's in a position to like collect the mail. He gets the mail, sees that there is a need for one person to take a job with the NATO predecessor organization in Paris. So he put it in his pocket. He bypassed the captain, went to the commander and said, I'd like to do this. And he let him go. And so he spent the next two years hanging out in Paris and he developed a lifelong love of all things French. So quite the life, quite the character. 
and very, very grateful and humbled to have been able to speak to so many people that just simply revered him, but also enjoyed his jokes too. Now, I'd like to turn on another sad note to Lisa Rains, who was on one of the planes in the 9-11 attacks. At the time of her death, at 42, she was SVP of government relations at Genzyme, and she was closely involved with virtually every important public policy issue that established the contours of biomedical, legal, and regulatory issues from the mid-1980s on. We will rerun today our Remembrance of Lisa on our website, so please check that out. We'll put it in front of the paywall as well. Turning to Washington, FDA's two most senior regulators responsible for oversight of vaccines, Marion Gruber and Phil Krauss, recently surprised their colleagues at FDA, as well as vaccine developers and members of the public, by resigning. Now Gruber and Kraus, who are director and deputy director, respectively, of Sieber's Office of Vaccines Research and Review, have shed a little light on the reasons behind their impending departure via a paper in The Lancet. Steve, you've been following this closely. In fact, I know we don't like to toot our own horn at BioCentury, but you did break this story. Tell us a little bit about what's going on. So, yeah, I know that Marion Gruber and Phil Kraus didn't intend to have their resignations announced publicly. And that was a story that I broke last week. I think that they had intended for this paper that's in Lancet now to be the first public mention of their dispute with FDA leadership and others in the Biden administration over boosters. And really, it's a gut punch to the Biden administration and I think to Janet Woodcock and FDA leadership to have two officials of their stature publish a paper ahead of an advisory committee meeting expressing their opposition to policies that FDA, the White House, and the CDC have already committed to. I I think that there's no prior example of FDA officials publishing before an advisory committee meeting before a decision is made, expressing their contrary views on it. In the Lancet paper, which is co-authored by Tom Fleming, one of the most prominent biostatisticians in the United States and the world, and two scientists from the World Health Organization, Gruber and Krauss expressed their view that the data doesn't support routine boosting for most people. They say that there isn't enough data and that there isn't any urgency to make a decision right now. They call for the collection of more and more robust data and point to what they say are confounding factors in the studies that have been released so far, particularly the um, observational data from Israel. I think that the advisory committee meeting that's going to come up on the 17th is going to be extraordinarily interesting in this regard. You're going to have Gruber and Krauss, I expect, They're going to have to have an opportunity to express their views on this. Peter Marks, who's their superior as the director of the Center for Biologics, is a supporter of the booster policy, I'm told. He's controlling the agenda there, and I expect that he'll speak there also. Some of the advisory committee members have expressed skepticism about boosting, in particular, Paul Offit, who's one of the most prominent vaccine experts in the world, who's a member of the committee. In the past, these committee meetings have been run in a way that didn't really give 
the members of the advisory committees much opportunity for discussion or debate. It'll be interesting to see this time whether that's different and whether the advisory committee members are more aggressive in taking the stage. And overall, I think it's going to be really fascinating to see what's a scientific and medical debate that's merged into a policy and political debate, all hashed out in public and resolved one way or another over the course of the next week or two. Now, Steve, you also spoke with former FDA chief and current, I guess, COVID czar for the Biden administration, David Kessler, recently. Did that conversation give you any insights into what's happening at FDA? So David Kessler, who was the FDA commissioner and really redefined what the job meant to be FDA commissioner in Republican and Democratic administrations, is now the chief science officer for the Countermeasures Acceleration Group, what used to be called Operation Warp Speed. The story that I wrote about him is on our website. He said a number of things that were quite interesting on the booster front. He made it clear that he supports the administration of boosters. He described them as third doses. He said there are a lot of vaccines where it's routine to give third doses, and he believes that that should be the case for COVID vaccines. He also, in our discussion about correlates of protection, made some interesting points, and he said that neutralizing antibodies aren't the only factor that's going to be important in determining correlates of protection. He said that so far there hasn't been a threshold that's been established for neutralizing antibodies that determines whether a vaccine is going to be protective or not. And he also said that there are some individuals who have been protected by vaccines who don't have any detectable neutralizing antibodies and suggested that there are other factors. Other people have talked about T-cells and other things that are likely to come into play. Interesting stuff, Steve. Uh, I suppose he'll be at the FDA advisory committee meeting as well then. I'm sure I'd be watching it. Actually, I'd be surprised. I don't think he'll be a participant in it. Mm-hmm. Cool. And, and when is that meeting again? The 17th. 17th. An all-day affair on the 17th. Excellent. Well, Steve, I'm starting to hear a lot of rumblings about drug pricing. We saw a uh, letter come out from a bunch of executives. I think it was led by Peter Kolchinsky. There's a few bills kicking around. Can you preview, set the stage for us on what we should expect? We should expect fireworks. We should expect a a lot of headlines, a lot of excitement. It's really unclear where it's all going to end up. The House of Representatives is starting to mark up legislation this week as part of the big budget reconciliation package that they're doing, the, the package that includes many of the Democrats' priorities for social spending. And uh, it's quite likely, though it's not certain, that the House will include drug pricing provisions in that bill that are very similar to H.R. 3, that many people in the biopharma world view as, well, as nothing short of disastrous. There was this letter that you mentioned that investors circulated. They had over 300 signatures on it. I think more than a third of them by major investors, the household names, people who have really been responsible for making the the biopharma ecosystem work. And they warned that if the kind of provisions that are being discussed on Capitol Hill are enacted, they said that investment in emerging companies would turn off like a light switch. I think that having said that the House is quite likely to pass those kinds of provisions, the real action is going to be in the Senate. It's very unclear what the Senate is going to do. Senator Wyden is going to be in the driver's seat there. He's the chair of the Senate Finance Committee. 
He's going to have proposals in the Senate. Remember, they have to get every single Democratic senator to sign on to the reconciliation bill in order for it to have any chance of going to the president's desk. And then whatever it is that they come up with is going to have to be reconciled with the House, with members of the House of Representatives. So there's a a long way to go between now and whatever gets passed. If I had to bet, and I wouldn't put much money on this, I would bet at the end of the day, there will be some drug pricing provisions in the reconciliation bill. They're not going to be nearly as dramatic as the ones that are being discussed in the House now. And they're likely to focus on drugs that are older and on reining in practices that a lot of people in the industry agree should have been reined in a long time ago, including unjustified increases in prices of older drugs. Interesting. So that sounds like it might be an issue that you could get a bipartisan solution around, but that seems so rare these days. And is the key question here, what would Joe Manchin do, Steve, or is he not as much of a player in drug pricing? Well, Joe Manchin's, uh, every single Democratic senator potentially is a key player in this. And you have to bet that the biopharmaceutical industry is going to every single Democrat who they believe will be sympathetic to their views and trying to get them to hold up legislation that they oppose and support measures that they support. I should say that in addition to the drug price setting provisions that are being discussed, there are also major reforms to Medicare Part D. It's too wonky to go into now. We could have a whole uh, (laughs) podcast about that, but there's going to be a lot of dispute over how those are going to unfold. The other Democrats in the Senate who the biopharmaceutical industries are looking to are uh, Menendez from New Jersey, Cinema from Arizona, and there likely are others. I think you got one of the state's names wrong, Steve. It's the great state of New Jersey. Well, thanks for all the insights, Steve. Always appreciated. Maybe we can get Peter Kolchinski and you together for a podcast to discuss Medicare. I'm sure that would be a popcorn eating affair. Let's turn to CRISPR now. Lauren, it's good to see you alive and well. I half expected you to be buried under a stack of peer-reviewed CRISPR papers. So lots happening in the space. Tell us what's new. So... We saw four papers that were published over the last two weeks or so, and they all addressed the same challenge for CRISPR, which is how to deliver this technology specifically outside of the liver. Earlier this summer, there was this huge step forward when Intellia presented the first clinical efficacy data for a systemically delivered in vivo CRISPR therapy. And that was lipid nanoparticle, which is pretty effective at liver delivery. But the next step is to get these technologies outside the liver. So with other genetic therapies, it's often AAV vectors that are used to do this. But the problem with CRISPR is that the machinery is pretty large and the carrying capacity for AAV is pretty small. So the papers that we're seeing are describing ways to make the CRISPR systems smaller. One example was from a Stanford group tied to refuge biotechnologies that described some engineering that they've done to the ultra small Cas14 system. We know some other companies are working on Cas14, including Mammoth Biosciences. We've seen a bunch of papers from Fang Zhang's lab. One of those papers described another ultra small CRISPR system, which is a Cas13b family member. 
And he separately published a new RNA delivery vehicle, which goes beyond the traditional idea of packaging things into an AAV or a nanoparticle and is a protein-based delivery vehicle to deliver CRISPR as an mRNA. Karen, I want to ask you something regarding the impact of these and their importance, because obviously there are many, many articles in the scientific literature on CRISPR all the time. So what is it that makes this crop of articles more than incremental? What is it that people should be sitting up with a straight back for regarding these? I think we should always be on the lookout for new CRISPR systems, which these new CRISPR systems that are capable of editing human cells that have an advantage over the Cas9 systems that we have. So the fact that these are smaller is a huge advantage when it comes to delivery. And the fact that these are focused on families of CRISPR enzymes that we know have this gene editing potential and that aren't Cas9. There's so much IP drama tied up around the Cas9 system that when you see papers coming out with new systems that might be able to accomplish the same things or to have different functionalities, I think that's really interesting. And Cas14, I don't think it works that well naturally or even at all in human cells, but I think three of these papers were describing variants of this Cas14 system and ways to make it work in human cells, which it would be an important advance because this seems like an interesting system. So is there a name for these smaller CRISPR systems? Can we coin one, you know, like CRISPNite or something like that? You had to go there, didn't you? You had to go there. Yeah. That's a good idea. Maybe you can help. Krispy Kreme? I don't know. (laughs) Um, One other thing that just stands out to me, Lauren, is the fact that it's still the CRISPR pioneers, Fang Zhang, Doudna's group, obviously Doudna's behind Mammoth, that are really continuing to push the boundaries Is there like a selection bias in this that they just get their things published more? Or is it really that those innovators, they've got their foot in the gas and they're just going faster and faster? It's it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, we scan all the major journals, but I think we have an eye out for things that come from these labs. And I think the major journals probably do too. But we've just been seeing an incredible amount of innovation come out of both the Doudna and the Zhang labs. We know that there's a bunch more in the pipeline. We have it under embargo, so we can't talk about it right now. But keep watching biocentury.com and we'll have the info for you. And now let's turn to our deal in focus this week. Today, Chinese in-licensing company Everest Medicines announced a deal with Providence Therapeutics. The deal grants the Chinese biotech a license to an mRNA vaccine that it believes could be best in class. The deal gives Everest its ninth clinical program and fourth in the clinic for infectious diseases. Now, they also have one approval already in Singapore with more applications under review. I had the good fortune of speaking with CEO Carrie Blanchard and CFO Ian Wu on Sunday, and they believe the vaccine is in a good place to be among the first mRNA vaccines to roll out in China and elsewhere in Asia. And that's saying something. I mean, uh, you've got Fosun in a deal with BioNTech, the German mRNA company, 
that vaccine is under review right now. And just last month, we saw mRNA vaccine developer Abogen raise $700 million in Series C funding. And as far as I can tell, that's the biggest equity round in history for a pure play biotech in China, if not the rest of the world. That's Bo Ying's company and quite a few heavy hitters backing that company. Tomasek, Hill House Capital, Lily Asia Ventures, Boyu, Invesco. So for Blanchard and Wu to be confident that they can be in this first wave of mRNA vaccines in China, that's that's saying something. And Blanchard, uh, as many of our listeners know, is a big deal in China. He's former Lily China. And Wu is ex-Lazard. And let's see here. What are the terms here? Let's check it out. It's a $50 million upfront payment paid in cash. It is a... And that is for collaboration products, additional products, and the technology platform. For COVID vaccines specifically, it is also $50 million up front. Let's see. Yep. Providence is eligible for up to $100 million U.S. in profit sharing. After $100 million, eligible for royalties and for additional products up to 300 million in future milestone payments could be passed along. Those are in newly issued Everest stock. Now it's a busy time for Everest. They are preparing to become a commercial company with two decisions on therapies expected next year, I believe in the first half. And they've also just launched a discovery unit, which is led by another Lilly veteran, Jennifer Young. Interestingly, the deal came together after Providence CSO Eric Markison approached Blanchard with the asset. They know each other from back in the day. Markison was at ISIS, now called Ionis, and Blanchard was at Lilly, obviously, and they they had a deal. They worked together, and Young also worked on that deal. Some familiarity there, so could mean things run smoothly. That's all we have time for. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.